our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. All right, Kent Cove, this morning, as we have said, we are beginning a series on the Lord's Prayer. And for this series, we're going to be using two different texts throughout the series, but we're going to be using these two for the next six weeks. So um, the first one we're going to be using comes from what is known as the Sermon on the Mount, which is uh, kind of the chapters in Matthew that contain what I would call uh, the central teachings of Jesus. And so this, these are his instructions in the Sermon on the Mount about prayer. And they come from Matthew 6, beginning in verse 5, going through verse 15. Jesus said, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners, to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words." Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Please join me in prayer. Bless us this day, O Lord, with vision. May this place be a sacred place, a telling space, where heaven and earth meet. Amen. So a couple of things as we get going on this, on this series. Obviously, prayer is something that is central to the Christian life. It is something that we talk about a lot. It's something that uh, we either are uh, kind of okay at, or it's something that we feel guilty about not doing enough of. There are a lot of nuances that go on with our relationship to prayer, right? There's just a lot of ways to think about it, and especially if you were raised in the church, you might have ideas about how it is that you should pray, how often and how long and what it should look like and all of those things. And sometimes, let's just be honest and say that the, the way that we've learned to pray in our tradition, in our growing up, 
and in our churches doesn't necessarily reflect what we just read from the Gospel of Matthew, right? In fact, I would argue that we are pretty good at praying with words much of the time, or we're pretty good at feeling guilty about not praying with enough words much of the time. We are not so good at praying in silence, right? And so there's just a lot of different ways that we can think about this. The other thing that I want to recognize as we get going on this prayer, two things actually. The first is that I recognize that for some who have uh, difficult relationships with their families, especially with their fathers, the language surrounding this prayer can present something of a roadblock as you think about and your own father and perhaps that relationship is broken or was unhealthy or abusive. And so then that, that puts a barrier for you in, in hearing that language. We want to acknowledge that. And uh, I want to just kind of encourage you to try to, to recognize that what we're holding up here is uh, kind of the ideal of fatherhood. God's fatherhood is not the fatherhood necessarily that we experienced from our own fathers. And so we want to recognize that that can be difficult. The other thing that we want to think about is recognizing that prayer is challenging. And one of the ways, one of the places that we can get lost, especially in our evangelical tradition, I've heard these and had these conversations over the years, is over whether or not praying by rote counts. At least that's the attitude that's behind some of the questions, right? Because for some of us who grew up in certain traditions, anything that we repeat over and over again, we equate with liturgy, which we say is at worst meaningless and at best rote memory. Now, I would suggest that's a very truncated and not helpful way to think about liturgy. And I would also point out that even those of us in non-liturgical traditions, like we tend to be, have their liturgies, because liturgy, quite frankly, is just the order we do things in. And if you go to these churches that don't practice liturgy, and you go there long enough, you'll figure out what their liturgy is, right? And so we can get kind of lost in the forest for the trees in that we can look at the Lord's Prayer and think, well, are we supposed to pray these words exactly? And there are those who make strong arguments that, yes, indeed, Jesus did intend for us to pray this prayer daily. And if you follow the way that Jesus lived his life, that not just daily, but that would be three times a day, morning, noon, and evening, right? Or there are those who argue that, well, what Jesus is actually teaching here is what we should pray and how we should pray. He's not so concerned that we use these exact words. And as usual, the more helpful way to look at this is with a both-and mentality. Yes, is it helpful to pray the prayer just as it is taught in Scripture? Absolutely it is. Is it helpful to think more deeply about what it is that Jesus is inviting us to pray about? Absolutely, yes it is. And so that's the approach that we're going to take as we think about the Lord's Prayer. That it's a both-and proposition. Jesus did intend for us, his followers, to pray it exactly as he taught us. And he also did intend that we would reflect on what it is that we're actually praying about. 
And so in this series, we're going to go through and we're going to take it basically petition by petition in the Lord's Prayer. And so today, we're going to look at our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's how we're going to break this down. So prayer is central to the Christian life. And in fact, this is part of our, uh, we get this, this centrality of prayer out of the roots of Judaism from which Christianity comes. Because in Judaism, there are three chief acts of Jewish piety. They are almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. And Jesus, in this prayer, is pointing to their chief aim, which is to bring glory to God. So that the only proper motive for doing these things is to please God. It is not for any reward or praise from people, as we heard in the instructions that Jesus gave about doing this in private. So, as we think about prayer, I'm reminded of uh, my, one of my favorite hymns, the old hymn, Be Thou My Vision, and the lines that say, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise, thou mine inheritance now and always. We pray to have relationship with God. We do not pray so that we can be seen. We do not pray to demonstrate our piety. We do not pray for, uh, primarily for any of those reasons. We pray to bring glory to God and to build and to have relationship with God. And if we look at the life of Jesus, we recognize that Jesus modeled a life of prayer. Jesus, the Gospels show us that um, Jesus prayed in the early morning, He prayed late in the day. He prayed before making major decisions. He praised the Father for successful missions. And he passes this approach of prayer on to his disciples, inviting them into that life of prayer. Jesus also prays in crisis in the garden. He cries out to God in pain. And he turns to God as he faces death on the cross. So what we want to recognize as we enter into this prayer is intent and practice is important. And content is important as well. And form is important. So what, one of the reasons I think it's important for us to recognize that praying the prayer just in the way that Jesus taught us is because form rehearses content, right? So while, yes, you can make an argument that doing things by rote memory uh, can lead to kind of a lifeless expression of faith, we also have to recognize that form uh, influences or rehearses content, And so that even in those times when perhaps we don't have the words, and that's one of the values of liturgy, right? Have you ever been in a season of life where coming to church itself is a chore? Where it takes virtually everything you have just to walk through the doors and to think then in the midst of whatever weight it is that you're carrying, whether that be grief 
or anger or depression or bitterness or whatever it is, to think that you drag yourself to church and then you're going to have be able to just make up the words. The value of liturgy and practicing the form is that it rehearses the content. In other words, we don't have to come up with our words because the words are right there for us. And even when we can barely utter them, I believe that through the power of the Spirit, they are doing formational work within us. Right? How do I know this? I know this experientially. Okay? So for me, I grew up uh, in the Lutheran tradition. And so I grew up with, with liturgy and robes and the whole deal. And I used to love that as a kid. Seeing the pastors come out in their robes and, and hearing the liturgy every week. But as I got older, it became a little wooden, shall we say. And then in my young years as a, a Bible student at North Park, studying, doing my biblical and theologi- theological studies a degree, I started to get very critical of my upbringing. And then as time went on and I got to seminary and I started doing a deeper level work with the text and with systematic theology and all these different classes, all of a sudden I started real, I realized something. And I don't remember exactly what day it was, but it became very clear to me that the liturgy had formed me and formed me well. It had given me good, deep theological roots, even and especially during those times when it maybe even felt like to me that I was just saying words. And so when we think about the Lord's Prayer, we want to to remember that when we pray it, we are reminding ourselves how we are to pray and what we are to pray for. So the form rehearses the content. And in coming weeks, we'll talk about each of the petitions in the Lord's Prayer and how they form us into the pattern of Jesus. And it is today, as we said, that we're going to look at that first petition, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I came across a quote from uh, Frederick Buechner, that I love, that that says this about these first words of the Lord's Prayer. He wrote, It is only the words, Our Father, that make this prayer bearable. If God is indeed something like a father, then as something like children, maybe we can risk approaching him anyway. It is only the words, our Father, that make this prayer bearable. It is only in recognition of God as a loving parent that gives us the audacity to pray this prayer at all. In recognizing that God loves his children and desires for us to be with him. The great modern theologian N.T. Wright says this about the Lord's Prayer. He says, we want it because we know in our, hearts of heart, in our heart of hearts that we want the living God. We want to know him. We want to love him. We want to, tr- to be able truly to call him Father. 
In that, in a sense, therefore, the first words of the Lord's Prayer represent the goal towards which we are working, rather than the starting point from which we set out. So what Wright is saying here is that these first words, our Father, actually represent what it is that we're after more than where we are starting. What we are after is recognizing and experiencing the loving welcome of God the Father. He goes on to describe praying the Lord's Prayer as being like putting on our big, our, our older siblings' clothes, right? They don't quite fit and show us that we have some growing to do. And so that's another way to think of the prayer. That as we pray these words, we recognize that, that so often we fall short. But instead of beating ourselves up about falling short, maybe we look at it like recognizing that as we did as kids when we tried on clothes that were too big, that they just didn't quite fit yet. And we had some growing to do. This prayer invites us into the life and work of not only Jesus, but God himself. And what was that work and life of Jesus? Well, one of my favorite expressions of that came from an, an old uh, Christian rock band that I heard years ago, and the lead singer said that Jesus is all about setting people free. That is the work of the Lord's Prayer. That is the work that that prayer invites us into, into resting in God's love for us and then joining him in his work in the world. Now, it's important to recognize that this prayer is not prayed simply for our own spiritual development or simply for us to feel closer to God, although it certainly has that effect. It is an invitation into the Jesus revolution of turning the world upside right, beginning with those who call God Father. This prayer is an invitation into the kingdom insurrection, that place where everything seems upside right, that place where God is doing his work of setting all things right. That place of values like those we rehearse in the prayer. And so those are some realities that this prayer invites us into. Then we move into this strange continuation. And we have some conversation going on the staff about the, the King James language here. But in my mind, it, it uh, captures something that, that our vernacular does not. Hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name. What this phrase does two important things. The first is that it reminds us that God is holy. He is not us. He is completely other. So what is God's holiness? Well, God's holiness encompasses his moral purity and his love. 
God's holiness demands that he bring holy justice to bear on any wrongdoing or evil. But his holy love means that he will bring redemption and not destroy his people. Secondly, it serves as a reminder, this phrase, that hallowing or making God's name holy is not merely lip service about how holy God's name is. To hallow God's name is to desire that God be worshipped and praised by his whole creation. God's name is made holy when people and God's creation are made whole and released from all brokenness and sin. This is the work that this prayer invites us into, the very work of God making all things new. We hallow God's name when we join in his work of restoration. We profane God's name when we ignore or join in ways of living or being in the world that continue or reinforce the bondage and brokenness of God's creation. You see, brothers and sisters, for too long we have simply spouted one of the Ten Commandments about God's holiness, keeping God's name holy, and turned it into a moralistic uh, constriction of our language. And I'm not saying that's not important. We should not use God's name frivolously. But the idea of making God's name holy or recognizing God's holy name is, is actually joining him in that work in the world. So I want to read that last thing again. We hallow God's name or make God's name holy when we join in the work of restoration. We profane God's name when we ignore or join in ways of living or being in the world that continue or reinforce the bondage and brokenness of God's creation. The noise and distraction that we surround ourselves with, work, entertainment, constant news consumption, all conspire to paralyze us, anesthetize us to the reality of what God is doing in the world. And by so uh, joining in those distractions, we become overwhelmed by the pain and brokenness of the whole world as it groans for redemption. We are overwhelmed by our own sinfulness and the devastation it brings to our lives. Broken relationship with God, broken relationships with our friends and family, broken relationships with even ourselves. This is why, in many Christian, Christian traditions, this prayer is introduced by the words, we are bold to pray. Now that, that tradition was new to me, but I love that idea. We are bold to pray. We do not pray glibly or by rote. We pray that we might be formed more and more into the kingdom people God has created us to be. We are bold to pray. 
And that boldness then invites us into that redemption, into that work, the work that transforms us and the work that we are invited to join God in in the world. The work of living into and becoming people who call God Father and who make his name holy. Now, N.T. Wright again says this. He says, Our task is to grow up into the Our Father, to dare to impersonate our older brother, Jesus, seeking daily bread and daily forgiveness as we do so, to wear his clothes, to walk in his shoes, to feast at his table, to weep with him in the garden, to share his suffering and to know his victory. As our Savior Jesus Christ has commanded and taught us by his life and death, even more than by his words, We are bold, very bold, even crazy, some might think, to say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.